Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, and you can open up to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 tonight. Hebrews 2, 1 through 9. Hebrews 2, 1 through 9, these are the words of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we adrift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little... You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we realize that without your Spirit's illumination, the hearing of God's word will fall on deaf ears and unfocused hearts. We ask, therefore, that you open our minds and hearts and and keep our attention on Jesus Christ, our great salvation. We ask now that you would speak through your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We have been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and we come now to the first of many warnings throughout the book. So we will be admonished several times over about our ability to neglect the great salvation, about falling away, about drifting away from Jesus Christ and his gospel. And the reason there are warnings is because the thing warned against is a very real possibility. Tornado warnings do not exist to remind you to take your meds. To state the obvious, tornado warnings exist, kids help me out, to warn you of what? Tornadoes. So the same thing goes for the book of Hebrews. Stay close to Christ, draw near to Christ, look to Christ, and those are all things we'll read about in Hebrews. Um, Do not fall away, stay, stay, abide in Him, be focused on Him, and so on. So warnings serve to jolt us out of our stupefied state of boredom. They are meant to alert you of present danger. Before we dig into our passage, I want to remind you of what we have established uh, thus far in our series. Um, The entirety of Hebrews is a sermonic law word, like Deuteronomy, that is meant to encourage and exhort us towards obedience. And not just obedience in a general vague sense, but obedience in a real sense for all areas of life. So, as I mentioned, the book of Hebrews is structured just like the book of Deuteronomy. And that's because both of those books 
um, they both reflect the ancient covenant treaties between um, kings and people. Deuteronomy was the exhortation to Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wandering right up before they took the land of Canaan. Hebrews um, was the exhortation to the church during their 40-year wandering, I put that in air quotes for a reason, right up until and before they were to go and take the earth to make disciples of all nations. So keep in mind the events surrounding the first century, as this is honestly very, very important to understanding the book of Hebrews, especially some of the things later on we'll we'll encounter as well. There were 40 years between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and her temple. 40 years between those events. These 40 years were the uh, generation that Jesus referenced during the Olivet Discourse. So um, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. And he warned of the desolation that would come at the hands of the Romans. So know that that's the context underneath all of it, and we'll, you'll see how that plays out as we, as we go further. So Jesus was, was right. He's not a false prophet. He predicted that it would happen because he is the prophet, and Jesus was right. And so sure enough, within a generation, this happened. And so, listen, so you understand kind of the way that the timing works for Hebrews. The beginning of the new heavens and new earth, the new covenant era, was marked by the resurrection of Christ. That was the inauguration of God's new world order, so to speak. The end of the old heavens and earth, the end of the old covenant era, the end of the old Judaic aeon was marked by the destruction of Jerusalem. So God's, think about it, put yourself in the first century, God's seal of approval was on Christ because of his resurrection. So his obedience led to suffering, and that suffering was then rewarded by the Father. He was raised, um, and, and raised in a sense that we, we shall be too raised in the same manner. So that was, the resurrection was God's seal of approval on that. God's seal of disapproval was on Israel's leadership for their rejection of their Messiah because of their rebellion and their ultimate rejection of of Jesus. So that's what's at play here in Hebrews in this in-between overlapping of the ages. So I say all that to give you some context to the whole book and give you some context to the passage that we have this evening. So let's consider our text and then we'll draw out the implications. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. There are two parts to this section. The first, in the first few verses, has to do with the warning to not neglect our great salvation. So that's the first section. Don't neglect our great salvation. The second section really serves to explain what that salvation entails. And you should know it's more than simply just thinking nice thoughts about the gospel from time to time. It's, it's more than just our uh, affirmation of doctrine that's out there in, in this, you know, metaphysical, non-real, you know, thought world, if, if you want to call it that. So let's, let's go ahead and read um, verses 1 through 4 again. And listen carefully. Follow the train of thought. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So, we are told in verse 1 to pay much closer attention to what, we had heard, what we've heard, and we better take this seriously because there is a chance we might reap what we sow. If, if we do not take seriously what we have heard from the apostles, from Scripture, namely this doctrine, gospel doctrine, kingdom doctrine, then there is a chance that our neglect of it will lead us adrift. So the, the word drift actually carries this connotation of floating on water. So, you know, kids, uh, how many of you guys like to swim? You like to go swimming? Okay. You ever floated on a raft before? So, so imagine, imagine for a moment, here's a little thought experiment. Imagine yourself on a raft on a beach somewhere, we'll call it on the eastern seaboard, and you fall asleep on the raft. And you wake up hours later, and suddenly you're in the middle of the ocean, and you can't see land anywhere. Would you say that's a good thing? <laughs> Not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So that, that's what happens when we sow patterns of neglect in our lives. We don't stay rooted in gospel doctrine. We don't stay rooted in that which was taught to us from the Word of God. And what happens is you end up stranded out in the middle of nowhere. So the writer continues in verse 2, talking about angels again. Remember, in the old covenant scheme of things, angels were the mediators. Angels were the mediators. They were the ones who delivered the mail. They brought the law of Moses to, God, to, to Moses and God's people, and Moses would often be found ministering to God's people. They declared the message of gospel doctrine, and the writer says it proved reliable. And not only was this message reliable, the sanctions of the law of God brought by angels was, quote, just retribution. So a lot of times we think in the Old Testament, God was, was very angry and his medication took in. And finally, in the New Testament, he figured it out and he's a lot happier now. That is not at all how the God of Scripture should be viewed. Uh, don't forget, Jesus had a whip in his hand at one point. So in the Old Testament, the, the scheme of things, the law of God brought by angels was just retribution. Justice is only, and this is um, a rabbit trail, but we'll come back. Just bear with me. Justice is only justice if it adheres to the scriptures, if it adheres to the law of God. So you can't just slap a sticker on something and call it justice because you think it's expedient or because, you know, you think that's how things should be because any number of things. The sanctions of the law of God brought by the angels were just, it was just retribution. So follow the train of thought of the writer of Hebrews. If it is true in the old covenant aeon, how much more true is it in the new covenant? And not only that, since, since we now have a full picture of God in Christ in the gospel, verse 3 says, how can, how can we escape and you might wonder, well, what is he talking about? Escape what? Well, how do we escape the same sanctions of God if we do this drifting? How do you escape it? So lesser 
to greater. How does anyone neglect God? How does anyone drift away from, from gospel truth? How do they get away from all of that and escape punishment? How can anyone stand underneath the wrath of God for violating his covenant? Clearly it's rhetorical. You can't. So the writer continues, The message of the kingdom was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, verse 3, and it was attested to, to us by those who heard. So that's why we're not sure if Paul wrote this, because Paul had direct revelation, and he insists upon it several times in his letters. Um, so he wouldn't have been one who would have received it from others. Um, there's debate on that, but that's really irrelevant at this point. So, so it was attested to us by those who heard, verse 3, and not only was it preached and attested to us by the apostles, verse 4, God brought another witness, remember two or three witnesses, God brought another witness through signs and wonders and miracles wrought by the Holy Spirit according to his will, verse 4. So the Holy Spirit, by the way, is a he. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And um, the Holy Spirit has sovereignty, too. It's not just the Father and his divine election, though that's true. Um, the Holy Spirit is sovereign as well. The apostles, having been empowered and gifted by the, the Spirit according to his will, were witnesses to this great salvation. So the argument goes from lesser to greater, and we'll see that again later in Hebrews. So the point is... The great salvation of man was declared by angels, and God used it to bring just retribution toward those who broke the covenant. God is a God of vengeance. He is, a, he is fire. He is um, wrath. Uh, he is love. Um, the scripture actually never says he is wrath, but he is wrathful toward those who, who um, break covenant. So, so it was declared by angels. Then this salvation was declared by God in Christ. It was witnessed by the apostles who worked with Jesus and then were sent out. And then it was confirmed by signs and wonders. So the question then now it's, well, how much more? If it was true then, how much more? How much more will there be sanctions for those who violate covenant? If it was true then, how much more now? So keep watch, the writer says. Pay attention. Pay much closer attention, otherwise you will find yourself in the middle of the ocean. So that's the, that's the first section. The second, second section, which continues this line of thinking, is found in verses 5 through 9. And these verses essentially expand on the topic of salvation in a broader sense. So if you look at your text, um, we learn in verse 5, God did not subject the world to come. That is this new covenant era that, that we live in right now. He did not subject it to angels. Yes, angels are important. Yes, they serve God's purposes. Um, they, you know, they are God's covenant intermediaries as well. But Christ has come. He is greater than the angels. And not only that, not, and that's the whole first chapter is about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And you, you, know, you might think that's odd, but the whole point of it is Jesus has come. He is the mediator. He is the mediator. The angelic administration is now finished. But here the author makes it clear that the new covenant era would not be marked by angels ruling as priests and kings. Instead, man would rule in Christ. Notice that, in Christ. And he proves his thesis here by quoting from Psalm chapter 8. Look at verse 6. 
It has been a testified, it's been testified somewhere. By the way, you're in good company if you don't remember where the passage is. It's in the Bible somewhere. Even the Bible forgets where it's at in the Bible sometimes. It has been testified somewhere, and this is Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is a passage, first and foremost, about man. When you read Son of Man, don't immediately jump to Jesus. Think Adam, and we'll come back to that in a second. So it's first and foremost about man. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? Mankind. So it is a messianic psalm, no doubt. No doubt about that. And that's really the, the point the writer is getting at. It's about man, but ultimately it's about the man, Jesus Christ. But it's first and foremost about humankind. So think Adam. Think creation. Adam was created to be a priest and king in God's temple world. That's what Adam's task was. When God made Adam and Eve, who, kids, who were our first parents? All right, you're tracking. This is great. Adam was created to be a priest and a king in God's temple world. This was the plan from the beginning. However, sin entered into God's good world, and in this calling, his vocation was maligned. The image of God in man was now twisted. When, when Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam, who was with her, sin entered into the world. And then that's when things kind of went sour, so to speak. Now, when that happened, mankind did not cease to be, be made in the image of God. All men are made in the image of God. Um, so that, it's twisted though, it's distorted, it's maligned, it's, you know, it, it's like a broken mirror. You can kind of see, but it's just, it's broken still. So the, the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him? In light of man's rebellion in Adam, why, why bother? You made us God and we rebelled against you, so why, what is man that you care about him? Why? Why do you bother with us, <laughs> might be the question. Yet, there is still hope for mankind. For while we were made lower than the angels, meaning our sin was a barrier um, and a problem, humans were still crowned with glory and honor, and they are still called to bring everything in subjection in the world under their feet. In other words, listen carefully. The dominion mandate, the creation mandate that was given to Adam and Eve was never rescinded. It was never rescinded. There, you're not going to find a Bible verse somewhere in you know, Second Chronicles where no one reads, right? Uh, or one of the prophets you can't pronounce. You're never going to find a verse that says, Oh yeah, by the way, I told you to subdue the earth and I thought twice about that. Never mind. It was never rescinded. Man was to take everything that they were given by God in creation and use it to build a social order that reflects heaven. Earth was to reflect heaven. That's, that was the whole point of it all. So business and education and politics and economics and, and commerce and travel and vacations and, and everything that you can think of in your life that you do or long to do or whatever the case is, all of it was to be subdued. All of it was to be under this dominion mandate. And yet the problem of sin became a reality and everything became corrupt. 
So what, what could possibly be the solution to man's calling and plight? If we're called to this and we did not achieve it because of our sin, but yet we're still called to it, how do we get there? How do we get there if we have sinned against God? What is the solution? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 8. Um, he finishes the quote there, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he comments, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to man. But there's a shift in verse 9. But we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So who is the solution? Jesus, right? Christ is the solution. Christ is the answer to this problem. So that's, that's just a quick overview of the section, and I want to kind of tease that out some more. The question at the outset for us, when we read a passage like, like, passage like this, we, we should ask some questions about it. Whenever you're reading your Bible, ask questions. Um, the question, though, is already there for us. It's already available to us. The question is in verse 6, um, and you, may, you can underline that if you need to. The question is in verse 6, and, the, and it's a quote from Psalm chapter 8, and this is the question. What is man? What is man? This is not a question you should ignore. It's not a question you just simply pass over. This question is central to the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is man? As I mentioned, God created Adam and Eve as his vice regents. They were to be God's representatives in God's world. They were to be priests and kings over God's creation. The whole fruitful, be fruitful and multiply command then... That command is the same thing Jesus was getting at when he talked about discipling the nations. All spheres, all spheres of life of this social order, uh, everything that man touches, all of it, was to be aligned with God's law word, and each element was to be developed and it was to be stewarded. So Adam, Adam's function in, in the world was that of mediation. He was the mediator. Adam was the mediator. He was the man given the keys, and he was told to keep the place safe. But everything changed when Adam and Eve set aside their calling and opted for a perceived greater calling, namely the calling of self-sovereignty. They wanted to know good and evil, which meant that they wanted to be determiners of it. They wanted to, they wanted to decide for themselves that which was ethical, that which was good, that which was evil. The problem is, of course, one cannot define or determine this apart from God. All right, you, they were duped into thinking that God had given. Um, <laughs> they were thinking that God had kept something from them. That there was some sort of secret knowledge. Gnosticism didn't start, by the way, in the first, second, third century. Gnosticism started in the garden. They thought God had kept kept them from something. Right? They they had. Um, uh, instead of trusting him, they wanted, they lusted after something that they thought God was keeping. Um, so had, had Adam and Eve never sinned, God would have given them more and more and more and more. You ever thought about that? What if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned? What, 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 would, the, what would the world look like? Well, 
God would have continued to give them more and more. This basically this infinite capitulation of grace upon grace upon grace. That's that was the way it was. The system was designed. But rather than patiently waiting for those blessings, patiently waiting for it, they impatiently tried to circumvent the process. So what happened? Who tempted Adam and Eve, kids? Who tempted Adam and Eve? Satan did, right? The serpent. Man, you guys are quick. This is good. Satan. So sin entered in the world, right? Sin polluted everything. It pollutes our hearts, it pollutes our thoughts, and it, it pollutes our hands, and what we do with our hands even. Sin touches everything because God cursed everything. Now, what Psalm 8 is getting at is that Adam's calling was a calling of lordship. Adam's calling was a calling of lordship. Adam was a lord. He was a lord over creation. That, that was his task. He was to rule and reign under God's authority over creation, making culture, making iPhones, and creating wealth. That's what he was supposed to do. He was to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. That was his calling. But not only did sin corrupt our hearts, it corrupted that calling. It corrupted the calling to, to subdue the earth, to be prophet, priest, and king over the earth. And, and incidentally, that's why the, the, um, the whole, remember the whole Tower of Babel incident in Scripture? You don't have to flip very far to get to that. Um, instead of spreading out and expanding to the, to the world and building and creating and all these things, they tried the socialist gig and, everybody, and God then scattered everybody. So that's because collectivism never works. So the point is, there is much more at play than our, simply, um, our need for heaven when we die. There's much more than that involved. Psalm 8 is getting at our, the heart of our calling to live as kings and priests in God's world. That's the heart of the calling. Crowned with glory and honor. You, crown, king, it, it, it's all there. So we're told, um, the salvation we're told to not neglect isn't simply, don't forget Jesus died for you. Though that's true, and we need that reminder every single day. But that's not the only thing. The salvation is, in a broader sense, you and I are called to not neglect our calling. Don't neglect your vocation. Don't neglect the bigger picture of salvation. <clears throat> now, the principle of finality that we talked about two weeks ago is still here. The principle of finality. Jesus is the final revelation. So Christian doctrine is foundational. Hebrews 1 lays the foundation. Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the transcendent Christ whose superiority surpasses even the angels. So he's the creator and he's the heir. He's the exact imprint of God. Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. He is the mediator, the true mediator. So, so Christian doctrine, understanding who it is Christ truly is, who, who he was and is, is essential. It's essential to our purpose. And it's not just essential to our purpose, it's practical for our cause. In our culture, doctrine has basically fallen on hard times. Many Christians despise doctrine. It's a dirty word of old. All, all it does is divide people and so on. You know, it's, it's too hard. You know, reading is just so hard. Give me a tweet and we'll go, right? That's what we think. So many Christians despise doctrine. It's intolerant. It's too restrictive. Doctrine is drawing a hard line into the sand, and that's not very kind. It's not nice. And yet, 
Hebrews starts out the entire thing with Christian doctrine. There's no greeting. There's no hello. You know, if it were Paul, usually it's a, hey, how you doing? You guys, this is great. I'm glad you... It's none of that. It's, there's no warm hello. It's just straight doctrine, no chaser. Pardon the metaphor. And this is incredibly important for us. Doctrine keeps us anchored. Right, kids? Doctrine, truth about God, keeps us anchored. That's the whole drift thing, right? Don't drift away. Don't neglect. Stay anchored. Doctrine keeps us from drifting. However, doctrine is supposed to be something that we do. Doctrine is not just something we believe. Doctrine is something we do something with it. Our lives are to be shaped and molded by it. We should understand in our heads that which is true, and this should in turn transform us into people whose lives reflect that which is true. And this is where this passage comes in. What is man? What is man? Well, he is God's creature. He is God's image bearer. But notice in Genesis that being made in the image of God, it's not, that's not just a, a nice thing that God said. Being made in the image of God is tied to our calling. Called to, it's tied to vocation. So being made in God's image means to do what God says to do. That's the dominion mandate. That's the calling. He didn't make the animals in his image, and they were not told to be fruitful and multiply. They do that. God built that in for them, but I've never seen you know, a pig develop an iPhone. That's not how that works. So how, how, how are we to achieve this? If that's, our, if that's our task, if God intends to save the world, which he does, how do we achieve it? How do we, how do we do it when sin has permeated everything we can think of, especially our calling? And the answer is found in one person, in one man, one man alone. Jesus is truly God, but know something, he is truly man. He is, he is the man. Part of the reason Jesus came and became a man was to restore this calling in us. Only by Christ coming low, that's the incarnation, hanging on a cross, that's the atonement, and being exalted as the mediator, that's the enthronement, only by those things does subjection happen. Man was called to subdue, but he sinned. Christ came to subject all things, but first he he himself had to be subdued. Jesus' death and resurrection is the key to the question, what is man? What is man? The answer, Christ is man. Jesus is man. What Adam lost in the garden, Christ regained on the cross. But only in Christ does one receive these privileges. You can't get any of this stuff apart from Him. Dignity, calling, and purpose for the kingdom returns to us sinners only when we are in Christ Jesus. Dignity, calling, and purpose for the kingdom of God returns to us only when we are in Christ Jesus. Listen, Adam was to be a prophet, priest, and king. We are called to be prophet, priest, and king. Adam sinned, though. We're in him. We sinned. Jesus came to atone for sin. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. So us in Christ, that's what we are. You don't get that identity. You don't get gospel identity, gospel truth, apart from gospel. You can't get it anywhere else. So in Christ, that's who you are now. 
that what's, what was true of Adam is true of you until Christ steps in. Then what's true of Christ is now true of you. Here's the thing. Adam was our federal head. We sinned in him. Jesus is the second Adam. He's our new federal head. And now we are restored in him. So the only way man can get back to this original calling is through Jesus Christ, the mediator. Jesus Christ, the man. So a lot of times we think that Jesus being mediator means that he hears our prayers and submits our prayers. And that is true. That's in Hebrews as well. But his mediation isn't simply something that he's doing now. It's something that he's already done. He has brought you into himself. And in him now you have this calling. You're not just saved for heaven. You're saved for a job. And that, that's why so many Christians walk around aimlessly anymore. I, I, I'm not sure what, I, what, what this, that, and the other. Well, you're in Christ. You are who you are. Be in him. You are, you are re-enlisted then. That's true conscription in Christ's army. See, Adam's sin was, in part, an immature grasp for power. That, that power would have been bestowed on him had he obeyed. Premature grasping can only lead to inevitable fumbling around. We cannot get ahead of God. And we, and we think we're pretty good at this. We think we can outsmart God. We, we are more godly than God sometimes. But all of that's just bullheaded stubbornness. It's bullheaded thinking. You cannot achieve that which God has called you to achieve by prematurely grasping for power. Listen. All men want to have all the sovereignty they can muster up, but they want to do it apart from the sovereignty of God. That's why you get into politics, right? You can be in charge of other people. Isn't that enticing? So men want all the sovereignty that they can muster up, but they want, they want to do all of it apart from the sovereignty of God. They want all the control and providences they can find, but they do it all apart from Christ. So from individual people to even churches to even the state herself, all men long for sovereignty. All men want to call the shots, but we need to know that this is impossible. You trying to usurp God's power, trying to circumvent His sovereignty, is like trying to swim across the Atlantic. Can't do it. You can't. Only the gospel gives you the grounding from which your whole life can now be built. Your whole life can now be built in Christ. You were broken. You were tainted. The image of God in you was, was twisted up. But only in Christ now can you now have this life built on Him. You, you cannot exercise sovereignty in Adam. You can only do it in Christ. And even in Christ, it's delegated sovereignty. The subjection that we are called to only happens in Jesus Christ. That's it. And, and the text says here in verse 8, not everything is in subjection. We can't see it yet, right? But what do we see now? Not even just what, but who do we see now? Who do we see by faith who was made a little lower than the angels for us, who died and rose, who was crowned with glory and honor, having tasted death for everyone? Who do we see? It's Jesus Christ. We see the second Adam. And here's the thing. The church today needs an awareness and knowledge of its purpose. We need to know who we are in Christ and what we're supposed to do with that. We need to know what our goal is in Christ. 
Not what our goal is apart from Christ, in Christ. The goal is far more than salvation of souls, as important as that is. This isn't the salvation being referred to in our, in our text that we're in danger of neglecting. Listen, the purpose of salvation isn't just to get you to heaven. Though that's grand and and amazing. The purpose of salvation is to get you back to your original calling in the dominion mandate. That's, That's the point of the text. The great salvation that we are in danger of neglecting is the outright denial of the fullness of what Christ has done. Namely, restored man to his calling to, to have dominion over the works of God's hands. Only in Christ can a man find his way back. Only in Christ. Only in Christ do men make sense. What is man? Is he evolved pond scum in the Darwinian scheme of things? What is man? Is, is he just a, a, a being who needs economic stability in the Marxist schemes of things? What is man? Is, is he just an emotional being uh, who, who should think emotional thoughts and you know, have emotional opinions and that's it, like the current cultural thing that we got going on? What is man? Is he a product of time and chance acting on matter? What is man? Or is, or is he created with purpose, with value, with meaning? Only in Christ. Only by Christ being a man can man be restored. Only by Christ being God can that restoration even be guaranteed. The gospel, the gospel tells us that the old man, the old covenant, the old world has given away to a new man, the new covenant, and a new world. And that's why it's a great salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and that, that's not just a bumper sticker. Jesus intends to save the world. And that's, that's why we have this warning so quickly at the beginning of the book of, of, of Hebrews. Don't lose interest in the vastness of this gospel. Don't lose interest. Don't neglect it. Don't take your eyes off Christ. Don't drift away on a raft having fallen asleep. Don't neglect to live inside all that Christ has purchased for you. So warnings, they wake us up. A neglecting of the gospel is an embracing of divine wrath. This, this is all about covenant sanctions. Will we ignore Jesus, the man whose death and resurrection has brought us this new creation? Will we? Um, neglect is bad for three reasons. Quickly, one, because only Christ gives you life. You can't, you can't get it anywhere else. Two, the reality of eternal wrath that awaits us is a reality. Three, um, neglecting ignores the means of God's saving grace. There are things we must neglect, but this is not one of them. Adam sinned. Christ redeems. Adam failed. Christ succeeded. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. This is what Hebrews intends to emphasize over and over again. Man can only be truly defined by God in Christ. That's it. And we should also take note that Christians own the dictionary. So every, every rebellious thought, every rebellious um, definition that comes from man, that comes from the humanists in, the, uh, you know, the, in, in our universities that like to just twist this all up, all those definitions, they either borrow from God or twist that which is already God's. 
So friends, as we wrap up, our calling to have dominion in the world is defined by God. He sets the parameters. Anything else is rebellion. Everything else is chaos. Everything else is, is twisted. And I think this is why, generally, as, a, as an application point, why we are generally anxious about making decisions in life. We don't make decisions based upon what the kingdom of God demands of us. We instead cripple under the weight of the fear of man. And all of us are guilty to some extent. So your life, kids, your life, and that's adults too, so you're not getting out of here scot-free either. Your life ought to be marked by the gospel of the kingdom, this great salvation. And yes, when we, when we die in Christ, we are with him in heaven. That's a beautiful, a beautiful picture. But know that it's about life now too. The gospel is for now. In, in, in culture, in th- the world around us is never going to be transformed until we are mature in Christ. Culture is not transformed until men are mature in Christ. So that's why you can't neglect this. It's too important. That's why you see stuff crumbling around us. Um, we've neglected this great salvation. We, we find ourselves yawning at the sunset. We're bored when we should be in awe. So man, we're not the creator. God is the creator. Man is not his own maker. He's the product of the maker. And history is simply God's definition of mankind becoming realized every single day. God and us in Christ. So we, we were condemned. Christ saved us. We twisted the calling. Christ gave it back. Now we work all of that out in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, in our churches, in this nation that we're told to disciple. So that's the only way it's worked out, though, friends, in Jesus Christ, the mediator. And thankfully, he is ours. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you the glory this evening because you have chosen to magnify your son as the name above all names. We are grateful that Jesus, the second Adam, has come to save us, to bring us out of a state of enmity and into a state where we are now called friends of God. We ask now that your calling would be realized in us through Christ. Give us courage to challenge the institutions of the day that prop themselves up as sovereign. Give us the courage to build a culture that rivals the culture of today so that your name will be lifted high. And we ask all of this in Christ's precious name, who is our mediator. Amen.